the uncomfortable is a great place to be. If it's too comfortable for you, you're not going to stretch yourself, you're not going to grow, and you're not going to discover something new. So you always want to do that next thing that makes you a little bit uncomfortable, that stretches you a little bit. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? everyone, the show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Lori Gottlieb joins us on Skin from the Couch. She is a psychotherapist and an author. She writes the Dear Therapist column in The Atlantic, and she's also the author of the best-selling novel, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which I read, I loved, and then recommended to every member of my family. Lori, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Lori, we're very excited. I feel like we're about to have therapy. We're going to start, though, putting you on the on the hot seat, which is can you skim your resume for us? Yeah, sure. After graduating from college, I worked in the entertainment business. First, I worked on the film side, and then I moved over to NBC. And the year I got there, two shows that you may have heard of were premiering. One was called ER and the other was called Friends. Heard of them. Uh, You know, when I was working on ER, we had a consultant who was an emergency room physician and he would do research with us and and help us to choreograph the trauma basins and make sure that everything's accurate. And I spent a lot of time in the ER and he at one point said to me, I think you like it better here than you like your day job because I was spending a lot of time in the ER. And, uh, and I was like, I'm not going to go to medical school. (laughs) Like I was like in my late twenties at that point, but I went to medical school. So I went up to Stanford, I went to medical school. And when I got there, it was the middle of the dot-com, the first sort of dot-com boom before the first bust. And a lot of people were saying, um, you know, managed care was coming into the healthcare system and I wouldn't be able to do the kinds of work that I wanted to do with my patients. I worked at a dot-com for a little bit in the summer between first year and second year of medical school. And ultimately, I started writing and I left to become a journalist. And I felt like as a journalist, I could really help to tell people's stories in the way that I wanted to. And it was about 10 years later after being a journalist for a while, and I'm still a journalist, but I had a baby and I was desperate for adult interaction and the UPS guy would come and I would detain him in conversation and he hated that. You're like describing me in quarantine. <laughs> yes, it was like that. And so he would always try to avoid me. He eventually started tiptoeing to my door, putting the packages down very gently so I would not open the door and engage him in conversation. And so I called up the dean at Stanford and I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, you know, you always wanted these deeper interactions with people. You're welcome to come back, but if you do psychiatry, you'll probably be doing a lot of medication management, which is not what you want to do. Why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do the work that you want to do? It was really this this aha moment. It sounds obvious in retrospect, which I think a lot of career things do, where 
you know, something that is right in front of you, you hadn't thought of. And so I did that. And I have this hybrid career where I'm a psychotherapist. I have a clinical practice here in Los Angeles. I'm still a writer. I write books. I write the weekly your therapist column for the Atlantic. I have a new podcast coming out about therapy. So I feel like what I do is I look at story in the human condition and I just express it through different means. What's something that is not on your LinkedIn profile or your bio that people would be surprised to know about you? Maybe that I was a competitive chess player. You have another fallback career. (laughs) I wasn't good enough for for it as a career, but I I was really serious about it. And I think I use that a lot in my career. So I think with chess, there's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of anticipating the consequences of your moves. And you can't plan everything out. But I think that when people look at my career, they think I made these very impulsive decisions. Like you're working in Hollywood and then boom, you're going to go to medical school because you're working on ER. And then boom, you want to you know, tell stories in a different way. So you're going to go right. And then you're going to go be a therapist and you go from sort of telling people stories to changing people's stories, right? All of that is true. But I think I very much thought ahead about why was I doing this and reflecting on why I was doing this. So many people said to me, you're crazy. You don't leave medical school when you get into Stanford Medical School, right? You don't leave Hollywood when you're at NBC and you have this job. Um, You're a successful journalist. What do you mean you're going to go back and do therapy? And why would you leave that? And so I think it's really about, um, I think in chess, you have to kind of really be reflective about what you're doing. And when I think about being reflective as an adult, I think that means being reflective and going inside to that place of knowing and not listening to all the noise out there, that the reflection is an inside job and not an outside job. When I hear you tell your story, literally my heart starts racing every time you say, and then you decided to switch. Med school is no joke. Like that is not a, you you know, you dip a toe in the water and see how you like it. Like med school is a all-consuming, transformative experience that, you know, we both know from some of our closest friends going through it. What was that like to leave a job that I assume, you know, you were on a really good track, you're on really successful shows to being starting over and, and starting over where like a lot of people I'm sure were 22 and in their first year of medical school and you're coming in not 22. What was your first day like? Well, first of all, I should say that in maybe you should talk to someone, I write a lot about this woman who is in her early 30s and she's diagnosed with cancer. And I think that maybe I didn't know it then, but what I think um, I somehow had an idea about was, even if I wasn't aware of it, was that we only get one life. And that she said to me, why do people need a terminal diagnosis to think more intentionally about how they want to live their lives? Why do they need a terminal diagnosis to say, I'm going to do this dream that I always had, or I'm going to pursue this thing that I always wanted to do. And so I think about that a lot. And I think about that in terms of my career, where I think on some level, I really have the attitude of you only get one life. And if you have this passion, this direction you want to go in, if you have this tiny little dream that you don't give much space to, right? But once you give it some space and you start to say, what if? I think a lot of us don't get to the what if. We get to the, oh, that's impossible. And so I think that it sounds very daunting if you think, okay, I was, I was in my late 20s when I got to medical school. I was like 29. And there's a 
huge gulf between someone who is 29, about to be 30, and someone who is 21, 22, and just graduated from college. And those, those people who just came from undergrad felt so young to me because I'd been out in the world and I had a lot of career experience at that point. And they had none. I mean, what, what had they done? They had taken a lot of biochem, right? And they'd worked in labs. And I had been like, you know, making films and television shows and, and getting along with colleagues and dealing with being like a young person in my 20s who had to pay my rent and all of the things they hadn't done yet. I think there was this sense of, like maybe I've done this too late and, and feeling out of place. But at the same time, I think that it was really helpful to have had that experience and to be older because we have this class called doctor patient where you go in and they videotape you and you're assessed on how you interact with the patient. And I remember that when we looked at the videotapes in our class at Stanford, I was the only person who had introduced myself to the patient. Everybody else had come in and they started asking the questions and trying to get to the diagnosis. I was the only person who did that sort of, hi, here's who I am, how are you doing today, that kind of thing. Just because I was older, at 22, I probably wouldn't have done that. I think that, you know, on the one hand, yes, from the outside, people said, well, you know, that must have been so hard. On the other hand, I think I had an easier time just because I had lived more life. You know, we've talked about reinvention and you've done it in separate careers that you do a great job of telling the narrative around, right? How working in TV led to an interest in medicine, led to interest in storytelling, to ultimately where you are today. I think something that really challenges people that realize they want to make a change is how to tell their story. What advice do you have for people listening who are nervous that they won't be able to kind of string together their own story? That's such a good question because it's really in retrospect that I can say, here's how all of these things are connected. Um, You know, they're all about story and the human condition, whether it's about fictional stories in Hollywood or real life stories in medical school or telling stories as a journalist or helping people to kind of edit and change their stories as a therapist. That sounds nice and neat right now. But I didn't know that at the time. And at the time when people would ask me about it, I would say things like, I would make a joke like, well, I'm either very versatile or very confused. And that was sort of how I would get people to stop questioning my decisions. And I think that it's really important that you acknowledge to yourself that I don't know if this is going to work out and that's okay. Right. But you don't have to explain to everybody else who those people aren't living your life. You don't have to explain to them or justify to them why you're doing what you're doing. That doesn't mean that you don't talk to other people about what you're doing. It doesn't mean that you don't take into account other people's thoughts, feelings, advice in terms of just hearing what people have to say. You know, I very much listened to what other people had to say and some of it I disregarded and some of it I thought about and ultimately I got to make the final decisions. But I think that, especially because of social media, a lot of us feel like we need to have a narrative that makes sense to other people. We need to have a reason that's very solid for taking a huge risk. So I think with with social media, a lot of people feel like they need to have a story or a narrative that makes sense to other people. And really, when you're going through something, what's most important is that the story makes sense to you and it doesn't need to be a cohesive story. The story is just this feels right to me, and that's enough. And you have to realize, too, that nothing is certain. So you might try something, 
and maybe it doesn't turn out the way you thought, but maybe you'll discover something else. Like I went to medical school completely thinking that I was going to have this career as a physician and it was going to go a certain way. And when I was there, I discovered something else. And I'm so glad that I did. And yet, when you think about how I kind of circled back and became a therapist later, it's very much related. I am a clinician, right? I do see patients. I just do it in a different way. So the stories aren't necessarily going to be linear. They might be like, I think, the best stories in life, a little bit circuitous. There's an inherent acceptance of being comfortable with the uncomfortable. And we talk a lot about that like on the show because it's advice that we've gotten from some of our mentors of like every day, you're going to be a little bit uncomfortable. To be honest, that's sometimes very, very hard for me to deal with. I don't like being uncomfortable. And so I'm very curious, how do you coach your patients? Or when you even think about how you coach yourself, how do you develop the muscle to get comfortable with the uncomfortable? Yeah. The uncomfortable is a great place to be. First of all, it gives you some information sometimes about what's working and what's not working. But I also think that in our 20s, the most challenging aspect of being in your 20s is that up to that point, everything had been programmed for you. Like you went to school, then you got into college. All of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, my whole path had been mapped out for me. Maybe you got to choose within those parameters, like what major you chose or what classes you took or what extracurriculars you did or what internships you did or what jobs you took to support yourself during college, whatever it was. But you didn't really have just the whole wide world open to you. You still had some structure. And then all of a sudden you're in your 20s and you say, I have all these choices, or, but then you feel like you, you're trapped by that because you don't know, you, people feel like they need to pick the one right thing as if there's one right path. And they're so afraid of making a mistake that they get paralyzed and they don't know what to pick. And I always say to people in their 20s, I say, if the job that you're thinking of taking doesn't make you, the idea of it doesn't make you a little bit uncomfortable, don't take it. If it's too comfortable for you, you're not going to stretch yourself, you're not going to grow, and you're not going to discover something new. So you always want to do that next thing that makes you a little bit uncomfortable, that stretches you a little bit. There are two things that you write about that I wanted to just spend a little bit of time talking about. The first is the thought that people are unreliable narrators of their own lives. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So I did a TED Talk recently about how we tell ourselves stories all the time. And the problem with the stories that we tell ourselves is that we're all unreliable narrators, meaning that we tell a story in a certain way. And you know, when you're telling someone a story, often you want them to hear it in a certain way so they'll agree with you, or maybe that you want them to have a certain perspective. So there are certain things that we leave in or we leave out. Often who the kind of heroes and victims and the protagonists and the antagonists in the stories are kind of mixed up. The supporting characters sometimes don't need to be there, or maybe they need to be more of a main character. It's a lot of editing um, of people's stories because those are the stories that hold them back. They go around and they have a very rigid idea of how they see the world. And something is not working in that story. And a lot of times they're stories that we tell ourselves, things like, I'm unlovable, or nothing will ever work out for me, or everyone's life is better than mine. Those kinds of stories, I can't trust anyone. Whatever it is, 
they don't realize that that permeates every interaction that they have personally, professionally. And so it's really important to, first of all, be aware of what stories you're telling yourself. And then secondly, how can you change that narrative and make it more accurate? Usually we're carrying around a story from our childhoods that maybe were useful then, but now that we have the perspective of an adult, we realize they're just not true. I think we don't realize how much we talk to ourselves with these faulty narratives also. So when I'm doing public speaking and maybe I'm talking to a big group and I'll say from the stage, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? You know, show of hands, right? And I'll say, is it your partner? Is it your best friend? Is it your sister? Is it your mom, right? And most people will pick those categories, but really the person that you talk to most in the course of your life is you. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or helpful. And so part of rewriting the story is about saying, what am I saying to myself? What story am I telling myself all the time that is holding me back, that is keeping me from living the life that I want to live? And I think that's where this rewriting of the story comes in very handily, is where you say, wait a minute, there's something that maybe I'm doing, maybe I have a role in what's not working out. Because so much of the time we say, things aren't working out, it's about this person or this circumstance, right? And of course, there are difficult circumstances out there and there are difficult people out there. When I was training, um, one of my clinical supervisors said, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. (laughs) So with that difficult person, maybe, or that difficult boss or that difficult coworker, you know, what is your role in that? How do you respond to that person? And could you change the way that you're interacting with this person so that you have a different result? One of the things that you talk about in the book that I've actually never heard someone really talk about, and Carly and I have had this discussion a lot and I've had it with with friends, is when do you know or how do you know it's time to stop therapy? And how do you have that conversation? I find myself just thinking about, and I go to therapy, I think it's a great tool. It's helped me immensely. I am all for it. But no one really talks about how you kind of marry that train of thought with knowing when it's time to stop seeing a therapist or like how you have that breakup conversation? Yeah. First of all, our goal as therapists is to have you leave us. So it's a terrible business model. People don't realize that that really is our goal. So the first thing that I'm looking for when someone comes in is I want to know, you know, not just what's not working, but I'm scanning for strengths. I want to know what is working. And part of what's working is they made the call. They said, you know what, something, I I need to do something different. And I want to know not just why are they here, but I want to know why now, why this day, this week, this month, did they call when maybe this problem has been going on for a while. So there's some strength that made them do that. And then I want to know, sort of, you know, really get a sense of what they want to accomplish while they're doing this work with me. And we check in all the time, you know, about sort of what's going on. I think there there are these um, misconceptions about therapy. And one of them is that you go to therapy, you talk about your childhood ad nauseum, and you never leave, right? That's one of them. Another one is that you go to therapy, you download the problems of the week, you never think about your therapy during the week, you come back the next week, you download more of the problems, and basically you're just venting. That's not true. We like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world, but if you aren't making changes between sessions, if you aren't making changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So somebody might say, oh, now I know why I did that thing with my, with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend, with my whatever, right? And then I'll say, well, did you do something different? And they're like, no, 
but you know, I understand why I do it now. Well, that's a good first step, but you actually have to make changes. It's, it's a lot of work. It's like if you went to physical therapy and all you did was go to that appointment and you never did the exercises during the week, you wouldn't improve at all. And therapy is like that too. You have to do the stuff during the week in order to make it productive. And so if you're doing that, we're going to see a change from when you came in. And we talk about, you know, what are we doing? If there's a lot of sort of small talk, I'm always wondering, is the therapy over? Are we done? Or is there something the person isn't talking about that the person is sort of avoiding? I think two people are afraid to bring up with their therapist that maybe they feel ready to leave. Oh, totally. It's like the most awkward thing in my mind. But you use the word breaking up with your therapist. We don't see it as breaking up. We see it as a great success. And so if someone says to us, like, I'm really thinking about, um, I feel like I'm, I've done a lot of work here and I'm not sure I, I still want to be coming. You know, it's a conversation. And I've had that happen so many times where, you know, either I bring it up or they bring it up. We don't want to keep people there if, you know, we're, we're wasting their time, basically. And so um, please bring it up. What a lot of people will do is they'll ghost their therapist. So they're embarrassed to, um, you know, to say like, I'm done. They'll say like, oh, things are getting really busy. I've got this big project at work, um, you know, so I'm not going to be here for the next week. And then they like email you the next week and say, oh, things are still really busy. And then they sort of just ghost you, right? The problem with that is that you learn so much about how to relate by having that conversation. It's such a growth experience to be able to have a hard conversation. It's not hard for us as a therapist, by the way. You think it will be, but it's not. But for you, it might feel hard to say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm really thinking about ending the therapy. You don't have to worry about our response. We want to have that conversation with you. We welcome that conversation. And just by having it, you will have stretched yourself in a way that you can apply that out in your life. I want to talk about compassion in the workplace. We talk a lot on the show about whether it's okay to cry at work. And the moments that we've all had about that, it's an understatement to say that 2020 has been a year. (laughs) The definition of compassion in the workplace has really, really shifted over the last few weeks and months. And I'm curious, like what that means to you and what your advice would be to us as founders and CEOs around how to instill that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think because of COVID, there's been a great leveling. So people at all levels of an organization are seeing inside other people's homes. There's sort of an intimacy to the way that business has been conducted, even therapy sessions, right? So all of a sudden people aren't coming into my office, but they're seeing inside my private space and I'm seeing into theirs. And I think in some ways that engenders a lot of compassion because all of a sudden you start to see in a different way how we're all more the same than we are different. You start to see how we're all connected. You start to see parts of people's lives that humanize them in a way that maybe they don't share in a professional environment in the same way. So I think that's all been really positive. I think at the same time, there are professional boundaries. And when I think people talk about things like vulnerability, right? A lot of people will say, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna cry at work or I'm just gonna um, like put on Instagram, I'm gonna write, I've never shared any this with anybody else before, but I'm gonna share it with all of you guys and I'm gonna be super vulnerable. That's not real vulnerability in the same way that vulnerability, I think, is when the stakes are really high. So true vulnerability to me is when you sit down face-to-face one-on-one with someone who really matters to you in real life 
and you have a really hard conversation and you reveal something about the truth of who you are that maybe is hard for you to do. That's vulnerability. I don't necessarily think that's what we need to do in the workplace, but I do think that we need to humanize each other in the workplace. And I think what that means is taking an interest in the whole person. I think that when you bring your humanity into the workplace, you get better work product. People think better together. People work better together. But I think there's a difference between that and having a breakdown in the office. It's not that you can't feel your feelings in the office, but I also think how do you manage your feelings and what is the best way for you to get help with those feelings and how does that affect the people around you? There's a difference between humanizing the workplace and getting to know your coworkers on a very human level and also being aware, like if something happened in someone's life, being aware and saying, I'm so sorry that happened or, you know, let's talk at lunch or something like that and let's have a one-on-one conversation or let's go out to lunch. Um, but that's very different from like breaking down and crying in a meeting or people who yell. You know, there are people who feel like, well, I'm going to yell in here because I'm really upset about this and people should know I'm really upset about this. That's a very young way of interacting. And I think that you do have to grow up when you're working in groups of people. I have a few follow-up questions from the book before we go on to our lightning round. And for those of you that haven't read the book, all the names have been changed. I'm not going to give away anything that happens at the end, but I am curious, what did your therapist think of the book? (laughs) So my therapist did not see the book before it was published. And I, I made that decision very intentionally. You know, I, and the same thing with my patients. Of course, I never mentioned that I was writing a book right. to my patients, except for the people in the book who are not my current patients. You know, it was interesting because I didn't know if my therapist was going to read the book or not read the book. But my therapist did read the book while I was on book tour. And we had a really, you know, we had lots of conversations about it. Um, I think it's, it's one thing to go through an experience with another person. It's another thing to really get into, you know, the person's written experience of it. He, like most therapists, were really glad that the book was written because I think what it does is it shows people what therapy really is and what it actually isn't. And I think that so many people don't go and get help because they have so many misconceptions about what therapy is. And I think that what this book does is it kind of gives people the experience of being in therapy without having to go to therapy. And then a lot of people have said, I really want to go to therapy after reading the book. So I think that on the one hand, there was like a personal reaction that my therapist had, which was about our relationship. And then secondarily, there was the reaction I think a lot of therapists had, which was now people understand that this is really a deep, rich human relationship and that therapy is really about getting a really good second opinion on your life. How is your health? You know, it's sort of the same as it was in the book, which is I have some sort of autoimmune condition that for a long time people were, you know, sort of calling women's anxiety, right? And it was being dismissed. And I think that happens to a lot of women, especially young women, right? Um, Oh, you're just anxious. Don't worry your pretty little head. You know, you just need more sleep or you're stressed out. And I think so many times, you know, women especially get dismissed when they're having these symptoms that you can't put into a neat little box. And so I think that I hope that what people will take from the book in that sense is that you need to pursue it with your doctors and you need to get them to take you seriously. And when I did, it was really helpful because now when I do have symptoms, they're taken very seriously and I know what I need to do and I know how I need to take care of my health given that I have an autoimmune condition. Lori, we're going to move to our lightning round. Weirdest question that you got on the book tour? Ooh, I didn't get like, weird question. 
Well, I just feel like I see people coming up to you and like telling you their whole life story. Right. I was going to say it was less weird questions. It was more things like someone that I, you know, just people that I was meeting for the first time in 30 seconds would try to tell me very, very personal things about themselves in a public forum, meaning I'm sitting at a signing table and there's other people around and they kind of like put their face in really close to you so another, uh, other people can't <laughs> hear them. Although there's like a line of hundreds of people right around them. And they're like, I just want to tell you this thing. They start whispering their life story to you in this public forum. And that was very awkward. What is the most annoying thing a patient can do in therapy that like sometimes you and other therapists are just like, oh my God, this happened again? Yeah. The most annoying thing that they can do is to hide from me and keep the mask on. Um, and what they do is they distract. So, you know, they're the people who are like, they tell you a story and then they're like, before you can say anything about it, they're off on a different tangent and then they're on a different tangent and you just can't make contact with them. Those people are incredibly frustrating and you have to work really hard to, um, to get them to sit with you and make contact with you. Morning person or night owl? Definitely a night owl. What is the best way to relieve writer's block? To get outside and take a walk. Whenever I'm stuck, I need a different scene. I need a change of scenery and it needs to be outside and I need to see trees. Tip for people who are feeling isolated during this COVID time. Yeah. So first of all, I think that when we go back to the stories that we talk about, the word isolation, even the words we use affect the way we think about things. So we aren't actually isolated. We're not in solitary confinement in a dark cell in a prison with no contact with other humans. We are physically distanced. We're not even socially distanced because socially we can FaceTime with friends. We can have virtual book clubs. We can do all of that stuff. So I think that my, my tip is that they reach out to other people, first of all. Um, I think also for single people who feel like they, they are very isolated, um, here's a little thing from the therapy room. A lot of my patients who are in couples will say, oh my God, I love this person, but this person is driving me crazy. And I like, it's the same stories, the same anecdotes, the same quirky habits, the same whatever. And I would love it if my single friends would call me. The single friends are like, I don't want to call the people who have like partners <laughs> or kids because I'm going to, I'm going to bother them. They're really busy. They have so much on their plates. This is a PSA to the world of single people out there. Please call the people who are in couples or have children because they are literally dying to hear from you. Best memory of George Clooney at ER. <laughs> I think the first time that I saw him, so the first time we were on set, nobody knew who Juliana Margulies and George Clooney and all those people were, but they were so charismatic. And you could just tell that they were going to be superstars. And I remember the first time seeing George Clooney, and he was nobody. He was like this guy named George Clooney. It was nothing. And I was just mesmerized by him. And you just there was a presence about him. And he was so warm and friendly and just like a good human. What's your shameless plug? <laughs> My shameless plug? Um, I hope that everybody reads Maybe You Should Talk to Someone because especially now during COVID, I think that we all need to feel more connected. And it's a great time for people to kind of do some introspection and learn something about themselves and the people around them. What questions do you ask yourself when you're about to make a big money decision? When I'm about to make a big money decision, I don't get mired in the details of, let me do a big spreadsheet. Of course, I want to know if it's practical, but given that it might be, and then I'm scared about, you know, 
should I really do this? Does this make sense? I, I really ask myself, does it align with who I am? So if I imagine both scenarios, spending the money, not spending the money, how does this further who I want to be in the world? Does this align with who I am? You know, and, and part of that might even be, it will make me happy and that's okay. Right. So it doesn't have to be some, you know, some like this is going to further my goals, but it can also just be it aligns with who I am because I want to I want the joy of this experience. Lori, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Angela Richardson. I am the CEO and founder of Pure Home. We are a natural non-toxic household cleaning product line and laundry detergent. We make natural products that work. We're based in Las Vegas, Nevada. I started Pure Home um, after doing extensive research on ingredients and products, um, and particularly uh, skincare and cleaning products. Um, and then I realized that uh, they were not as safe as they claimed. And then I had been on my eco-friendly journey for um, a little while and wanted to create a company that had truly eco-friendly, you know, truly eco. The thing about natural products is sometimes they don't work. <laughs> and so I wanted to create products that worked. And so that's pretty much how I started Pure Home. We believe in uh, safe for your kids, for your pets, and for the um, environment. It's just me and like one other person. So we're a small, small but mighty team. <laughs> Um, we can be found on uh, our website at www.purepur-home.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Pure Home Clean. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 